You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I have to say, Wade, I'm a little bit concerned by what I've seen of you lately. When did you start wearing long gloves and wigs? Well, Kevin, it, it all started one November night in 2016. Oh, pretty harrowing, Wade. And here we are, four years later, on perhaps an equally harrowing election night. Yes, we are recording on election night, and maybe it's serendipitous that we're going to be looking at the new film from Robert Zemeckis, Roll Dolls, The Witches. And it definitely seems serendipitous that we're going to be reviewing the HBO special directed by Spike Lee about human connectedness and life in America through the eyes of Talking Heads frontman David Byrne. That's right, it's David Byrne's American Utopia. Kevin, how did I get here? I don't know, Wade. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. But this is my beautiful seeing and believing. My story begins when I was a young boy. You'll be comfy here. Your mama's all wrong. I'd do anything for her to be here right now. Grandma was a tough lady with a big heart. And little by little, she brought me out of my sadness. Now if you feel that you can't go on, darling. I didn't know it. But there was a dark shadow looming nearby. Witches. They're real. And they hate children. Welcome. What would you do if there were mice learning all around this hotel? I would call the exterminator. You see, girls? He would exterminate those brats. Uh, rats. We would exterminate the rats. Listeners, we are here with episode 269, and we are recording on election night. I think this is going to be a good distraction, Kevin, for me. I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good way to, to keep me from hitting the bottle too hard, and it'll be interesting, Wade, to listen to this episode when it finally airs on Friday, listening to... The voices of the past mm. who didn't know what their future held for them. It'll be, I, I'm not sure if it'll be something that we'll ache for with nostalgia or something we'll, we'll just want to kind of give our past selves a pat on the head and go, there, 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 there. <laughs> you were so naive. Uh, wow. Yeah, no, that's, this is going to be fascinating to listen to on the day of, of release. And I'm excited for the show. Uh, listeners know that I really like the Talking Heads film, Stop Making Sense. And you've never seen that. We've never actually given it the formal review, but we have the next best thing, and that's David Byrne's American Utopia. That's coming up in the second part of the show, and I am so excited, Kevin, to talk to you about that movie. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you about it, too. I mean, obviously, we've talked about Stop Making Sense on the show before, at least your enthusiasm for it. So I'm excited to see your take on on this newest effort from 
from David Byrne. Yeah. So it should be a fun discussion. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be good. And it is fascinating, too, because this is, I think, our first episode where both films, both of the films that we're reviewing, uh, premiered on HBO Max. So it's this new streaming service, and we've got those we're going to be diving in first up is our look at Robert Zemeckis' adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches. Here's the film's official synopsis. In late 1967, a young orphaned boy, played by Jazer Bruno, goes to live with his loving grandma, played by Octavia Spencer, in the rural Alabama town of Demopolis. As the boy and his grandmother encounter some deceptively glamorous, but thoroughly diabolical witches, she wisely whisks him away to a seaside resort. Regrettably, they arrive at precisely the same time that the world's grand high witch, played by Anne Hathaway, has gathered her fellow cronies from around the globe, undercover to carry out her nefarious plans. Kevin, while most people associate Robert Zemeckis with movies like Back to the Future... Force Gump, Contact, maybe even Castaway, he's churned out a number of popular family films over the years, who framed Roger Rabbit, The Polar Express, and the 2009 film A Christmas Carol. The Witches definitely falls into this latter category. My question to get us started is this. How do you think The Witches stands up as a family adventure movie? And... Do you think Zemeckis' direction lends itself to the unique vision of author Roald Dahl? Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see a movie like this because, because in a lot of ways, I feel like Roald Dahl is a little bit of a throwback these days when it comes to children's entertainment. He had this sensibility, uh, kind of this dark, warped sensibility that... You don't really see as much in films aimed specifically at children nowadays. It's a, there's a lot more teeth to his work, I guess you could say, than your average kids movie nowadays. So I was looking forward to this one because it's it would be nice to see a, a movie that's pitched toward kids, but also has that roll doll bite to it that I, I feel like is becoming increasingly rare. Also with Guillermo del Toro uh, serving as a, a co-screenwriter on this picture and as a producer, that gave me a lot of hope for it to be a really, uh, an, another one of these darker takes on a, on a, on a children's movie that would really, uh, I don't know, be, be kind of bracing and uh, a bit of a, departure from the beaten path. I don't think that this new film is really going to make anyone forget the 1990 adaptation of the same story, which was directed by the great Nicholas Roegg and I think is utterly fantastic and just has some really great work from the Jim Henson uh, Creature Workshop with the, uh, the effects on the Grand High Witch and the mice. That's all really great and it's capped off by just a really wonderful job of directing by Rogue himself. He really seemed to get how dark he could go with his adaptation without going too dark on one hand and yet without defanging the story on the other. I think that this new version by Zemeckis 
does not strike that right, that balance. And I don't know, it's it's difficult to put my finger necessarily on why other than that there's a lot of adaptation choices that are made that are a little bit inexplicable. And frankly, CGI is a poor substitute for the <laughs> practical effects that we got out of the Jim Henson workshop. So, I mean, that's maybe not the most innovative thing to say these days about bemoaning pra- practical effects losing out to CGI, but you really do see the contrast in full force here with this new picture. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. And I thought that the beginning of this film, probably the first 35 minutes, before we get into some of the CGI heavy elements, it, before Anne Hathaway uh, comes into the picture, I, I think I thought it was pretty good. I thought Octavia Spencer's character was uh, was a was a breath of fresh air to this film. I liked a couple of the technical choices, and then it kind of just goes all out the window. And you know what I kept thinking about? A word came to mind whenever I saw the CGI effects in this film, and that's plastic. They just feel empty. They feel rote. And I have not seen the 1990 film, Kevin. It's it's nice to hear you talk uh, big about that movie because I do want to go watch it. But I went back and I was I was looking at trailers and I was looking at clips and images, and there just seems to be a texture to that movie. I am not a a roll doll enthusiast. I'm not an expert on his work, but just kind of looking at the artwork, whether you think it's good or not, there's a unique style there. And I think here you get this flattening of all unique style when it comes to the witches, when it comes to the mice, when it comes to the production design. And instead you get something very, very generic. And that I think is one of the more problematic elements in the second half of the film. But yeah, I mean, I thought it was a, a an all right 35 uh, minute movie at the beginning. And, and then it just, it just feels lifeless. Not, not terrible, just, just not very good and not, not interesting, which is, which is not a good thing to hear about a, a film like this. You used a word uh, just now that I think is kind of the key for discussing what doesn't work about Zemeckis's version of this picture. And that word was texture. Hmm. There's not really a whole lot of interesting texture to this film. By that, I mean not just kind of the the CGI, which is not the most expertly applied CGI in the world. It's very fakey looking. It's very It's got that problem that poor CGI often has, where it just kind of feels floaty and smooth and... Uh, very, uh, very false, very, very artificial. Uh, so, so, I mean, that's one observation. That's not necessarily the most original one in the world. But I think more than that, that, that kind of artificiality extends to the characters as well. Uh, if you've read the original story or if you've seen uh, Rogue's adaptation of it from 1990, one thing that is pretty striking about it is how the the protagonist especially the the character of the grandmother played here by spencer is just she's so interesting there's a lot of life to her in uh in the 1990 film and in the book where she she, you know, she smokes cigars she's very no nonsense she's got a kindly quality but she's also there there's a hard bitten quality to her as well it's a very she's a very interesting character and there's a lot to be interested in about her 
In Zemeckis' version, she kind of reads as a stereotype. And I want to be charitable to Spencer's performance, but I'm really not sure how else to really take what we what what the fin- finished product is on screen she's you know kind of the the stereotypical southern grandmother who has folksy sayings and and says you know my 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 you know she makes cornbread and fried chicken and just it feels like zemeckis is painting with such broad strokes which isn't necessarily a bad thing for a children's movie i mean you don't necessarily need every character to be a tolstoy character in a movie like this but you do kind of need something to stick out. And this, I think, falls on the wrong side of that line where she's painted with such broad strokes that she just doesn't really feel much like a person. And I think you you get that from pretty much all of the characters except for maybe Anne Hathaway's Grand High Witch. And even she kind of, there's not enough time spent on her to really make her feel like she comes alive. She doesn't have the outsized presence, I guess, that you would expect from an antagonist of this nature. And that's just such a problem for, for a film like this, where it needs to kind of have the scale of this, this child surrounded by these cartoonishly menacing witches. And instead, it just kind of feels, it feels very pat and easy and small. And it's just a disappointment given the the possibilities that we know are already there for somebody who really wants to dig into what Dahl is doing with his with his storytelling. Yeah, I, I mean, I like Spencer's character. I I think, and I, I go back to the beginning of the film, her presence in this young boy's life after his parents died. Uh, it, I think it works pretty well. Her trying to get him to laugh, her trying to get him to open up. While at the same time, uh, being almost no nonsense in a way, so I, 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 I would probably disagree there. But I do agree that most of the character development is lost in this film. And I was reminded, you know, I was reminded of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids watching this because it, you know, you kind of got this similar uh, premise where you got kids that have changed. Um, in the story here, they become mice, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, they get smaller, but they go on this kind of adventure in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and during that adventure, they have these, they have these character moments where relationships are formed. They, they talk about uh, their relationships within their, their family, their relationships at school. We get some great conversations. Here, really none of that happens. After these mice, uh, these children are turned into mice, it's just all kind of um, escapades. And uh, they're crawling around and they're attempting to uh, achieve this or to um, steal this. And it's, like I mentioned, I wouldn't say that it's bad. It's just not super interesting. And all of the the setup with this young boy is, it's really just kind of, it's kind of lost. And you made a great observation about Anne Hathaway's character. I can understand why it would be fun for her to play uh, this, you know, play this this part. She gets to do a very, like she used to be in a very big role. And in one sense, she can kind of overact. Uh, And and I would say she's, I guess, kind. I I could see kids being like scared, but 
everything else is so over the top and everything is so digitalized that it's not really it's not really frightening and it goes back to you know texture and uh this plastic feeling across the entire film and as a result it's just not very imaginative and i i can only imagine uh some of the humor that could be inserted here. Some of the uh, different elements about children when they're clean, they smell like uh, uh, poop. Uh, this society um, to stop cruelty against children, they're really witches. All that's kind of funny. And I guess I just wanted more of that unique vision and unique humor within this film. Uh, it's something, something different, and we just didn't get it here. Yeah, the, the the lack of practical effects is a problem, not because, you know, I, I am a, a purist who thinks that all CGI is bad or that, you know, there's some sort of doctrine where practical effects are just somehow naturally better in CGI. But one of the, the pitfalls of CGI is that it can lead to this effect where whatever is being computer animated and whatever is actually physically on set don't really occupy the same space. Mm. And for a for a film that is really doing a lot with scale, you know, there there are these children. They they start off being children, obviously, who are smaller than adults to begin with, and then they're shrunk down even smaller, and they become mice. And they're trying to navigate the hazards of that. Uh, aspect of that new aspect of their lives with uh these these witches who are just so much more powerful than they are that's something that it really benefits from them existing in in the same space um and having to really actually interact with each other here it kind of you know when when the grand high witch is sniffing around uh, after one of the children who's who's in hiding somewhere in the room, and Zemeckis makes the choice to have her nostrils just balloon out to cartoonishly huge sizes. It doesn't read as oh no, she's about to catch our protagonist. It's more just it's it's kind of oh I wonder how they did that. Uh, your your mind is kind of elsewhere than on the immediate threat and that extends to you know later scenes where the mice who are themselves cgi are having conversations with the human actors and they just it's you you definitely feel like the human actor is looking at a you know a golf ball and a stick or or whatever it is so that their eye line is correct but they're obviously not reacting to anything that is right there and that just it lends a falsity to the whole premise that works at cross purposes with kind of this this darker um edgier child's fantasy that Zemeckis seems to be trying to go for and it just it makes everything seem a little bit limp and it causes other flaws to to pop out a little bit more yeah and i i will note too that this story uh has been translated transplanted to the civil rights era south and a young African-American boy is the lead character. And I really feel like it squanders an opportunity to fuel this film with meaning and, and with even additional tension. 
And yeah, it could have been like a like a a, a YA version of Get Out. It would have been oh, very man. interesting to see them make make more out of that that setting switch. And so I wonder, you know, what's the reason for doing that if you're not going to do that? Uh, yeah, so that that was really perplexing. I kept kind of waiting for this big metaphor. There's there's talk, just kind of mild top talk of you know only God knows. Our time on Earth, uh, God's will, His lessons, tragedy, but there's there's really there's nothing there, and uh, it just squandered all those opportunities. Yeah, and that goes back to what I said earlier uh, about the characters and the way they're written is that it just it feels kind of stereotypical like the 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 talk of God's plan and destiny and how we have to you know, meet hardship with, with hope. That seems like that's in there more because the writers think, oh, well, you know, these people in the American South of this time period, that's just the way they talk and think about things. It's not in the script because the writers actually have thought about the implications of those ideas Mm -hmm. and are really doing something with them. It's a, it's a similar problem to the race angle where it's kind of, there and it's different, but nothing is really done with it. So it kind of just feels like a, a fresh coat of paint on something very formulaic rather than something genuinely inventive and and thoughtful. Well, listeners, that is our review of The Witches. We would encourage you to send us your thoughts if you have seen this film. It is premiering. It's an HBO original. Let us know what you think about that film whether you think we're right or wrong, you can tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod on Twitter. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about David Byrne's American Utopia here in just a moment. I don't know where I'm heading this time There's something different Inside me now I keep on running But I'm trying to slow down There's something different Inside me Listeners, that song is Friends and Foes by Rasmus Soderberg. And we want to take an opportunity just to say a big thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We really do appreciate it. It really just helps keep us going. And there's a lot of a lot of streaming services out there. And we've been subscribing <laughs> to each one and trying to capture whatever films we can capture. Uh, this week, as we mentioned, is the HBO Max week. And you really allow us to do that. So 
Thanks so much. There are a lot of donation levels. One of those, which is our favorite, is the what can you buy for $5 level. And uh, Kevin, I I wanted to ask you, what could someone buy for five bucks? Five bucks would get you a potion that transforms you. Uh, it's, It's only $5, so it just transforms you into a person that looks exactly like you, but is just three quarters of an inch shorter. So... You know, you get what you pay for, but that's that's five bucks. It'll it'll get you a very minorly transformative potion. Yes, yeah, and, and half half of the monthly subscription of one of those said streaming services. So you can kind of choose between those uh, <laughs> listeners. Oh, if you would like to support us via Patreon, like I mentioned, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Like I said, we really do appreciate it. it it's just a huge help. Whatever you can do is, uh, it really is amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, and if you uh, aren't in the mood to uh, shoot $5, seeing and believing's way, you can also shoot it towards Christ and pop culture's way because not only does that find its way around about supporting uh, us and lots of other creators like us on the site, it also goes towards writers who put up really great articles on the site itself that you can read instead of listen to. Mm-hmm. And wait, I wanted to highlight a piece that just went up on November 2nd, so Monday, uh, Luke T. Harrington, who's uh, maybe most famous these days on Christ and Pop Culture for uh, his fads, crazes, and panics column, actually had the time to uh, sit down with the Bill and Ted sequel and and write up an article about that. And I gotta say, I I read this as soon as it went up because I was curious to know if Luke would. Mm-hmm. find some of the same things to like about that movie that I did and he did I can co-sign pretty much everything he says in that article I think it's it's really good it's titled you will probably not be a rock god and neither will <laughs> I some deep thoughts on Bill and Ted face the music so you can find it on christandpopculture.com right now it's a good one yeah, definitely go check that out. Uh, Luke is a great writer, and uh, you definitely want to read everything that he publishes on the site. So go ahead and do that. And as we mentioned earlier, you can contact us with your thoughts, comments about the show, maybe even some suggestions on what we could review next. It could be a new film or television show, or maybe something older. We would love to hear your feedback. Once again, that's at Pod at Pod on Twitter, or email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us and you. And that's what the show is. As people, we're a work in progress. Who we are, it extends beyond ourselves. To the connections between all of us.
We're back with the second half of our show. And Wade, actually, you know, we didn't talk about this before we started recording, so I'm going to spring this question on you unawares, as it were. When we were trying to decide what we were going to review here for the second segment, (laughs) did you secretly hope that this would end up being the... uh, the uh, thing that we are going to talk about here in the second segment. Did you put your thumb on the scales, as it were, when we were, <laughs> when we were making our selections? Well, e- ever since it's been released, I've been pushing down on the scales little by little. <laughs> you know, you, you don't want to push down too hard the first week. You just got to slowly kind of tip the scales, and that's how you get away with it. Oh, okay. I, You know, I'm, I'm glad you used that... <laughs> analogy of incremental pressing down the scales rather than the other analogy for incrementalism, which oh. is, you know, the frog in the pot being oh. heated up little by little until he boils yeah. to death. So, you know, I think that you had a much more apt uh, analogy there. And in any case, I think that this pick that we have here in the second segment is going to make for some pretty good discussion, especially from a huge David Byrne fan such as yourself. It is hard to know whether to classify David Byrne's American Utopia, directed by none other than Spike Lee, as a concert film, a documentary of a stage show, or something else entirely. The HBO special brings to the screen the Talking Heads frontman's Broadway show of late 2019 and early 2020, in which he is joined by an ensemble of 11 musicians, singers, and dancers from around the globe, inviting audiences into a joyous dream world where human connection, self-evolution, and social justice are paramount. The special includes performances of songs from Burns' 2018 solo album of the same name, in addition to popular Talking Heads favorites such as Once in a Lifetime and Burning Down the House. The musical numbers are accompanied with brief monologues in which Byrne addresses various topics such as police brutality, immigration, technology, and our anxieties about societal divisions that separate us from one another. So, wait, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, you're a huge fan of Stop Making Sense, the uh, concert film of a very well-known Talking Heads performance. You like that film a lot, and you've talked at length in the past about what an interesting stage presence David Byrne is in that film. So I'm curious to know, now that we've watched this film and you've seen David Byrne's interesting stage presence in two films now, what do you think of this second offering that's on HBO right now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. I mentioned a couple weeks, well, maybe a couple months ago, uh, I had seen David Byrne's only, uh, only film that he directed, uh, True Stories. Loved it. And was excited to watch this. I I tried not to learn anything about it before I I did watch it. Of course, I'm familiar with the album American Utopia, and I knew that it was a stage show. But this is this is different than Stop Making Sense, and you can definitely see how Burn as he's creatively kind of working through his projects doesn't go to the same well too many times if ever again this is a concert of sorts but it's also production whereas stop making sense is more of a traditional 
concert with those stage elements. And, and so it's fascinating to see the differences. It's also fascinating, if you know Stop Making Sense well, to watch some of the callbacks, especially in Burns' choreography. And some of the motions that he makes, he will call back to his previous film, but he'll add little details to it to, to change and to tweak. I think this is good. Now, Stop Making Sense is one of my favorite films of all time. I'm not going to put American Utopia there, but I think this is a really great movie. And there's a lot of things that I think we could talk about. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to just kind of briefly introduce is the, is the idea of what makes a movie like this a movie? So when Hamilton, the Hamilton film came out, everybody was like, well, well, is it really a movie? And I like the Hamilton production and I like the movie. But if you watch it, I wouldn't say that it's all too cinematic. It's pretty straightforward. And there are times too when I feel like it's actually poorly filmed and edited. With this movie, and, and I mean, why should we be surprised? Spike Lee is directing it. But it, it very much feels like the camera work is just as important as what's happening on the stage, that the camera work is embedded within this project. And, and that goes with close-ups, with pans, with shots of feet moving, shots on the stage level that's facing the crowd, these just incredible compositions from above and the side. There's just something really beautiful. So... We're going to talk about a couple things. We're going to talk about uh, David Byrne. We're going to talk about the band. But I think Spike Lee is just as integral to this this movie being a movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think it does. And I think that overall, you're right that Lee's direction directing in this film um, brings something to it that you wouldn't get from just watching the stage show. And I think for me, that's maybe my benchmark for whether, for, for the difference between a film and simply a filmed stage show. So to use your example of Hamilton, uh, I've, I've actually seen the stage show and I've seen the Disney plus, uh, recorded recording as well. And I mean, I think that the uh, the version that's on Disney Plus is is good. Um, it's a it's much better actually than most uh, f- filmings <laughs> of stage productions that I've had the misfortune to see. I've seen my fair share, and I've until I saw Hamilton, I was pretty bearish on the concept in general. I had never seen a good one until the Hamilton recording. But even having said that, I don't think that. If you've if you've watched the the Hamilton stage show or the Hamilton recording, I'm not really sure that I do think that you get more or less a similar experience from watching the Disney Plus version as you would from watching the stage show. I mean, obviously it's slightly better live, but you've gotten a reasonably good approximation of it from watching the Disney Plus show. I, I but I don't think that watching Disney Plus show like adds anything to the show. In contrast, I think Lee's version of American Utopia does add something. And I think he does that primarily through his choice of shots and where he has the camera placed through placed throughout the performance. I think maybe my favorite example is during a song that is very much about television and about the way that watching television can make you feel connected to, to utter strangers, to emotions that 
aren't native to yourself uh, and to a whole host of other things. In the stage show, David Byrne is standing uh, stage left. He's he's looking off stage through kind of this this curtain that is, that forms the backdrop for the entire stage, and he's kind of looking off at it, and he's singing the first verse of the song while a light shines from off stage onto him. And if you're watching that from the audience, you're out, you're seeing him in profile, kind of looking off stage. Lee, on the other hand, chooses to shoot that first verse with a camera that's behind that curtain. So essentially, you are looking uh, directly into David Byrne's eyes during Mm. that first verse with the light on his face. And because that with that first verse being all about the act of him watching TV and also feeling like he's receiving something from the television— that changes the the quality of the performance in a way that you wouldn't have just from sitting in the audience at that live performance. And I think there's myriad choices like that that Lee sneaks into this show that make it feel like a complete film and not just simply a document of one performance. Yeah, and, and just his way of utilizing the space. And so these individuals or within uh, what feels like a a box uh, with one side open and we're peering in at them and, and Lee shoots that. And at times it feels like they are like puppets or little figures within a, within a, a miniature scene. And it, it, it's just a fascinating piece of photography. And that works towards, I mean, so much of what Byrne has been saying for, for, for so long. I mean, you think about Stop Making Sense and the consumerism that he sees in the 1980s and this way that we are controlled or pulled to conform to society. You think about true stories, and you mentioned television here. In his film, True Stories, you've got that character, and she just sits in bed watching TV all day, watching these advertisements over and over again. And then here, you actually have a, a scene at the very beginning of the film where he's, he's talking about babies growing up, and the band around him begins to kind of move his arms and his figure. And he's emphasizing how the world kind of teaches us how to walk, but if we're not careful, we just go on blindly. And that feeds into a song where he talks about being being lazy, right? This reluctance to think when it requires hard effort and the way that our brains work in our, you know, neurological pathways. And there, there's so much, what I, what I love about this film is there's so much that connects itself to just the overall message. So, so it's not just the lyrics in the song. It's the great choreography by Annie B. Parson. It's this, the overall production that's led by David Byrne. And then it's, it's the way this film is shot and molded by Spike Lee. All of it just says so much. Uh, there are times when, when we're sad. Uh, times when it, it you know, we feel very frustrated, but then just moments of pure joy. And, and that's what I love so much about making, stop making sense is there are just moments of just jubil- jubilation. And uh, we get that here and it, it really is something special. Yeah, the moments of jubilation. Uh, I'm thinking especially of the the closing number of this show where 
the the show the the performers stop being stage bound and mm-hmm. they start invading the audience's space. I uh, I, th- I I like that moment quite a bit, and I think that really does a lot to um, get that jubilation that you were talking about. Really uh, bring it home in that it's not just people on stage uh, saying you know singing songs and. Uh, uh, saying nice sounding words to people in the audience who are watching, who then the show is over, they get up and they go home. Uh, with that boundary being kind of taken away between Byrne and the audience at the end, I think that really takes it to a whole different level. And I think also the way that Lee has that entire sequence filmed is interesting too. It's not just uh, his camera is observing, but you know his camera men are actually you know down in the audience, and they're they're getting these extreme close-ups of the performers themselves as they're kind of winding their way through the auditorium, singing at the top of their lungs. And there's an informality to the way that it's shot that that really makes it something special as well. I mean, obviously, we can't be in the room at that performance having the same sort of experience that that audience is but lee really does through his camera work and the way that his he and his editor adam gow really cut everything together they they bring it home in a different way and i think that that's the difference between a really great director knowing how to capture a moment versus a maybe a subpar director who thinks that in order to capture a moment, it's simply enough just to have cameras trained on the action. I think that difference really comes through here. Yeah, that Road to Nowhere song at the end where, where they're just kind of working through the crowd. I mean, it is, it's really great. And it goes back to the idea of being tethered. So all of the instruments are are wireless. And, and Byrne makes it a point to say, Hey, like we're really playing. Like there are no tracks in the back. Like we're actually playing this music. And to see these puppets or figures suddenly break out and go into the crowd. And much has been said in Stop Making Sense about how we, we don't actually see the crowd until the end. What I love here is, is that we get little glimpses of the crowd. We'll see a person kind of stand up and they kind of almost block the lower part of a shot. Or we get a shot from the back of the stage facing the audience and everybody's kind of dancing. Uh, but then this this band invades the audience and it really changes all of it. Uh, I, I, I kind of thought about the theological nature of this uh, film and even Burn, and it, it seems to me, if I'm making a correct interpretation, um, that... That Burns' vision of heaven is not necessarily this place far off that we go to, um, but we need to create heaven on earth. And, and we kind of see that here. Uh, we hear him talk about a city on a hill in one of the film's uh, closing songs. We, uh, we hear him say in one song, every day is a miracle. And as he's saying that, the chorus is sung, the camera's kind of looking down at the group from this God's eye view as they circle the stage. And all of those things really kind of create this image of what are we, what are we doing now to take care of our world? 
Now, obviously, uh, as a Christian, I believe that, that there is life after this life. Uh, but we also believe that God wants to reconcile heaven and earth. And so it's not this escape, but it's this kingdom coming down. And so even though it feels as if Byrne has this uh, different take on all of that, uh, that there's a glimpse of, of a reunion of a world where things do come together, where there is symmetry, where there is this, this joy. And we get, we get kind of a glimpse there of that and uh, how Byrne might see that in our world. And so there's, there's a lot really kind of to unpack within all of this throughout the musical. Yeah, the spirituality of this film, I think, is something interesting because watching it, it's a, it's a very humanist show. It, it's very much about, you know, our, our hope can, can be found in, in one another and fostering connection between people and, and trying to bridge gaps is sort of the, the way forward and the way that we can still have, have hope. That's a, that's a very humanist vision. And there's not a whole lot of explicit, ex- explicitly transcendent moments in this, in this, uh, in this show. If what, if by that you mean that Byrne introduces a, a real kind of like vision of heaven and earth and, and kind of a, a more, what, what we might recognize as Christian adjacent worldview in that. And yet, because he really foregrounds humanity so much, like it's front and center. And he says multiple times over the course of the show, the thing that we like watching more than anything else is people. It's not a bicycle. It's not a beautiful sunset. A a person or a group of people, those are the things that we like to look at the most uh, out of anything else in the world. And that being, that's a, that's a very humanist viewpoint, but it also maybe gives us an intimation of the way maybe God sees the world and how, how with humanity being the, the crowning touch to creation, how this, this show can lead us to maybe have a similar perspective and so even if it even if it is very humanist in itself the places where it can lead us with that kind of perspective are not necessarily explicitly humanist and can reach that sort of transcendent quality in a in a new way kind of in a roundabout way yeah yeah and uh just the artistry of all of this i i appreciate the tunes from american utopia there are tunes from other musicians that are utilized throughout this picture. Uh, this is a picture that uh, that wants to to challenge you and to provoke you, and I think that's what this art does. And then also just love the Talking Heads uh, songs here and the unique take on that and the unique play on that. And so we do get some of those hits that we've seen in Stop Making Sense. Uh, at the same time. Uh, there's there's a different type of spin. There there's this message that Byrne has been trying to communicate for decades, and and now in our world he 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 kind of tweaks it. There's talk of uh, of voting. There's talk of of how to make the world a a better place for for everyone uh, to live. And it's it's really funny because you you actually do kind of get to see some of. Uh, that unity on stage in the precision of these 
musicians in their choreography, and uh, it really is wonderful. I I really like this movie, uh, Kevin, and it's it's definitely jumped to probably the I don't know if you say the top spot, but but definitely the top of my uh, my list for twenty twenty. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's really cool to hear. I'm 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 excited to see how that list eventually shakes out. I like it quite a bit too. I I don't know if I'm as over the moon about it as you are, but it's a good film for sure. Listeners, if you have had a chance to see David Byrne's American Utopia, let us know what you think. You can catch it on HBO Max, HBO's brand new streaming service. But if you don't have the patience for another individual streaming service, it's also available through HBO Go and uh, Amazon Prime with an HBO subscription. So you can catch it there as well. Let us know your thoughts, as always, by emailing us or tweeting us. But for now, Wade, uh, we're going to close out this episode with uh, segments that we close most of our episodes out with, our recommendation segment where we recommend something from the world of television or film to our listeners. What do you have for us this week? Yeah, so this is another film from HBO. I figured we just kind of get it out of the way. It's a documentary released, I think, in August it was. Uh, It's called Class Action Park. It's directed by Seth uh, Porgs and Chris Charles Scott III. It takes a look at the legacy of Action Park, a New Jersey amusement park. And this is really a wild story. Action Park was a was a very dangerous place. And this film looks at some of the amusements, uh, some of the rides, the attractions at Action Park. And how it played into the times, the 70s and the 80s. And it really is a funny movie, but it's also kind of a sobering movie that says something about nostalgia, the way that we view the past, at the same time, the way that we see the world changing, if that makes if that makes sense. So yeah, uh, Class Action Park is streaming on HBO. Uh Laughed a lot, uh, like I mentioned, also kind of emotional in some sequences, uh, but uh, pretty interesting movie. Yeah, it's uh, that's an interesting pick. I haven't seen it yet, but maybe I'll I'll bump it up on my list. I have a documentary myself for okay. my recommendation this week, um, and it's actually one that uh, I don't know seems seems appropriate for the week where uh, a new election happens. It's uh, Steve James's 2011 documentary, The Interrupters, and Steve James, of course, is perhaps best known for uh, his documentary from the 90s, Hoop Dreams, about a couple of mm. Chicago youths who kind of try to uh, use basketball to to bring them out of their disadvantaged upbringing on the west side of Chicago. In this film, Steve James uh, tells the stories of three violence interrupters. Uh, the, these are former gang members uh, who uh, are working to protect their their local communities in Chicago from from gang violence not by you know agitating uh their their congressmen or by uh getting into politics themselves explicitly although they they do they don't run for office they do it instead by actually going out to the streets where gang violence occurs and physically interposing themselves 
in altercations that might escalate into into violent confrontations. It's a really inspiring picture, and the the way that James captures this footage is is really remarkable. We see multiple times uh, these people like literally get up in a in a gang member's face and and talk them down from escalating an argument into something that might involve physical violence or maybe even shooting, essentially putting their own lives on the line. And I think I thought of that documentary, I mean, obviously it's just, as film, it's just very compelling. Steve James is a very accomplished filmmaker, but it occurred to me this week thinking about, you know, about about politics and about, you know, the, the role of uh, Christians in the public square, and I was thinking about the example of the violence interrupters in this documentary, where it's not about you know writing the best social media takedown of your opponents. It's not necessarily about uh, advocating for political change, although that's important. the The primary way that these people affect change is by actually going out, meeting face to face with their neighbors, and putting their skin in the game, so to speak. It's a really inspiring documentary and one that seems especially relevant for us these days. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I have yet to see the film, but I definitely appreciate that idea of, like you said, putting putting your skin in the game and being out there. And uh, just something I've been thinking a lot about lately because of how easy it is to say something, uh, even on social media, uh, but not really kind of back that up. And so, yeah, no, that's a really, uh, this really great pick. Listeners, we are excited uh, to look at some of the films coming up here in the future. I feel like we've got some good ones on the docket, hopefully. And if you didn't have a chance to listen to our fall preview two weeks ago, you can learn about some of those that are hopefully coming our way in the next couple of months. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by crisisandpopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.